This is a special edition of Pig Health Today, part two in our podcast series, African Swine Fever, Intel from the Frontline. Today's roundtable features three U.S. swine veterinarians who recently visited China. From Iowa State University, Dr. Chris Rodemaker. From Carthage Veterinary Service in Carthage, Illinois, Dr. Neil Benjamin. Also from Carthage Veterinary, our host, Dr. Clayton Johnson. Today's roundtable discussion was organized by the editors of Pig Health Today and is made possible by Zoetis. Here is our moderator for today's roundtable, Dr. Clayton Johnson. Thanks and welcome everyone. Since August, the global pork industry continues to receive disturbing news about the African swine fever outbreak in China. The speed of transmission across China has been startling. ASF has moved farther in Asia during the first year of their outbreak than it has throughout the entire duration of Europe's decade-long ASF struggle. Recent revelations of wild boar infections continue the troubling reports from China. Statements from the Chinese authorities, such as the one issued a few weeks ago by the Ministry of Agriculture, claiming that commercial pig production will be banned from all areas with wild boars present, fuel speculation that the attempts at control are often not practical, nor are they enforceable, despite their best intentions. Given the concerns of accurate monitoring and reporting of the true ASF situation, keeping up with the outbreak's ever-changing status and separating the fact from the fiction has been no small task. We previously interviewed three swine veterinarians who had just returned from the Lehman Swine Conference. We now have the opportunity to get an update from Drs. Chris Rodemaker and Neil Benjamin, fresh off their own journey to the front lines of the ASF battle in China. Chris and Neil recently presented at the NAU-ISU Swine Summit in Nanjing, China. We'll chat today about their experiences at the conference, including scientific ASF updates, as well as learnings obtained from the good old-fashioned hallway scuttle. Let's get right to it. Chris, uh, in our first podcast, we got a situational update on the current cases through October. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's been going on since then? Where are the current cases located, and what do we know about the pig density or pig populations in those areas? Yeah, I think the current government-reported cases, I believe, are around about 100 in the most recent, these past couple of days here. And those are located in about 19 provinces and about four municipalities, including Beijing. So we're looking at just around 23 geographic locations where African swine fever has been officially diagnosed and reported as well. The most recent numbers I've heard is about 600,000 animals that were euthanized. Most of the swine industry in China appears to be kind of in the southern and eastern part of the country, with some in the central as well. And some of the more recent uh, diagnosed cases here probably within the last couple of weeks have been in a couple of those uh, southernmost provinces in China. So certainly we're talking about uh, quite a few number of pigs, certainly from all the confirmed cases that have been reported so far. Chris, have we learned anything new about how ASF first entered China? I think there's still a, a fair amount of mystery about that. It appears that the virus has been closely linked, at least from a sequence standpoint, 
to the one that's been traveling in and around the Eastern European circles. We still don't have a good feel for exactly how uh, it had gotten into China uh, most recently, but as you stated earlier, it certainly has spread uh, fairly fairly quickly. And with the more recent discovery of an infection in wild boars, that just is going to add an additional challenge to control and cleanup efforts in African swine fever for the country of China. Yeah, I remember just a couple of months ago, the big question was, will it ever get into the wild boar population? And for better or worse, we've answered that question very quickly, unfortunately. Neil, I'll turn it over to you here. You and I work together at Carthage, obviously, and, and you've, you've developed quite a few farm-level contacts from across the country during the trainings that you do here at Carthage with uh, some of our Chinese clients. As you chat with those folks now back in their homeland, um, what can you share about how widespread ASF is presumed to be throughout China right now? One of my friends who's a, a practicing veterinarian over in China and works for a consulting company over there, said that he believes that the, the cases are, are much more widespread, which is similar to what a lot of people have been speculating. But he has friends who practice in the northeast and eastern regions of China, and they're saying that in some of those provinces, the, the true prevalence, at least in, in the local level, is over 50% of some of the farms out there. So I would definitely take that with a grain of salt since it is word of mouth, but it, it's likely much more widespread than is being reported in the media. Do you know, Neil or Chris, if there's any uh, ongoing testing of meat products, specifically pork products, and, and as a way to maybe measure the level of infection? I know we continue to get reports from other countries that have airplanes showing up with them with Chinese tourists on it that are carrying contaminated meat. Are they doing anything domestically to try and monitor the, the prevalence of, of ASF contamination in their meat products? Uh, Chris, maybe have you start us off with that question. Yeah, um not specifically that I've uh, been made aware of. Uh, like you say, kind of sitting from the outside, certainly watching with interest the testing that's being done in other countries with the confiscated pork products. Certainly, the, you know, they've talked about doing things such as banning the swill feeding and uh, different interventions along those lines to try to help minimize that spread. But as far as internally or domestically, what they're doing from a testing standpoint, I have not really heard much on that front yet. Neil, anything that you're hearing on testing of meat products, specifically in China? I read that the government has talked about requiring slaughtering facilities to test meat from different sources. So they'd be slaughtering meat from different regions separately and then testing blood samples from those. Um, and then any positive ones would not be allowed to enter the food supply and then they'd have to shut down for 48 hours but don't have any specifics on how that would actually be carried out or how many tests would be required or how they'd be dividing up the regions, et cetera. The source where I read that says that they're thinking about implementing that starting February 1st, but I don't really have any concrete details about that. And I think that would be fairly difficult to, to implement. I would think there would not be very many uh, packing plants or producers that would be volunteering to pilot that program out, given the potential for shutdown. Exactly. As you guys were over there, did you hear any talk about, um, going back to the contaminated meat challenge, did you hear any talk about maybe some different ways that they're going to, to manage the contaminated meat risk? They've got a huge 
tourism event coming up um, with the Chinese New Year and then Spring Festival. Are you hearing anything about any sort of processing changes or anything they might do to manage the contaminated meat risk as they have literally a billion uh, Chinese residents move around and travel back and forth across the country to get home for their holidays? Yeah, I, I, I haven't heard anything per se on how they're anticipating about trying to mitigate that risk. Certainly, some of the people that I know who work inside of China, they're very nervous about that for that exact reason is you'd certainly have opportunity for a big mixing event where you've got people and, you know, they love to take some of their cured meats back and forth and redistribute them. So I know there's a lot of concern about uh, seeing an additional flare-up of cases after the Chinese New Year and the Spring Festival. But as far as officially about what they're trying to do in order to manage that, I haven't been made aware that, that of what they might be doing to help mitigate that risk. Let's talk a little about risk mitigation from contaminated meat coming into our own country. Chris, you made a great point that it's very much custom and tradition to travel with snacks, including cured meats, whether you're traveling domestically in China or internationally, unfortunately. What was your biosecurity experience like when you came back to the airport? Did you notice them doing anything different, any sort of communication or tactics that that domestically we're trying to apply to planes that are coming in every day to our country from China? Neil, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience at the airport? Yeah, so this past visit to China coming back from the conference, most of the announcements were still about foot and mouth disease. There was nothing specifically mentioned about African swine fever. There were beagle patrols in the airport, but they certainly weren't investigating each passenger's baggages. And I know from a recent trip out to D.C., I learned that there's only, I think, 120 or so beagles for the entire country that are responsible for monitoring all of the incoming cargo, domestic travel, et cetera, for the entire country 24 hours a day. So... Certainly, they're continuing to to ask people to voluntarily declare any fruit or meat products, but did not notice any stepped-up enforcement over previous travels internationally. Yeah, from my standpoint, um, the flight that I came in on came in from Shanghai um, uh, directly into Chicago O'Hare, and there was, while uh, everybody was at baggage claim getting their luggage, they did take a beagle and went through, made two laps around the, one of those really big, large uh, luggage claims, you know, just sniffing and testing for any sort of uh, potential contaminants. This was the first time that uh, we had beagles actively going through the crowd at the uh, luggage baggage claim uh, in order to do that. So that was Really nice to see a little more emphasis, as Neil said, about foreign animal diseases, not maybe African swine fever in particular. But the other thing I think they've seen, too, is just stepping up more uh, random checks. I had traveled home from a different country a few couple of weeks ago, and uh, I just happened to be just in meetings and hotels, so I never was in contact with livestock or anything, so I did nothing to declare, but I still got flagged for a random inspection. I think the efforts by the industry councils, talking back with USDA and APHIS, that message is starting to get through at least. It appears that we're having more uh, checks than what we have had in the past. That's excellent news. Chris, with that stepped-up biosecurity you saw, in your opinion, do you think we're doing enough right now on, on people coming in through air travel? 
You know, I think it's a first good step. It will be interesting to know or to find out what percentage that the beagles are finding or um, those type of products that may be come in through the quarantine process. But I don't have a good sense for that yet. It was just certainly nice to see that some of those things appeared to be a first good step anyway. What Neil had mentioned before about, you know, only having 120 beagles, I mean, that's that's kind of been an ask of the industry councils, too, is to hopefully allocate some additional funding for additional beagle training in order to uh, help step up and uh, prevent that sort of accidental introduction. Neil, I talked over you there for a second. I was just going to add that I had an opportunity to talk to one of the APHIS officers this summer, and, and one of the things that he said was that, if anyone's ever traveling internationally and feel that when you're coming through customs control, if you don't feel like they're doing an adequate job, for instance, inspecting your baggage, if you report that you have a meat product, et cetera, that they would like feedback on that so they can improve. So he encouraged everyone to, if you ever go through and, and feel like they're not doing an adequate job, to, to follow up with someone in charge and let them know. Very good. Let's switch gears a little bit here, guys, and talk about uh, the epidemiology uh, as we think about transmission throughout China right now. Chris, based on your conversation with uh, locals over there, veterinarians, producers, et cetera, does it seem like the ASF infections are an equal opportunity disease problem for producers of all types and size? Or do you think that one certain sector is being hit the hardest, backyard producers, medium-sized producers, big producers, et cetera? You bet. Just in my conversations with people who are working intimately uh, inside the Chinese swine industry, it really feels like it is primarily targeting many of the small and medium herds tend to be the ones that are probably more affected. Certainly on the official reports, those tend to be the herd sizes that are the most reflected. And many times that's because uh, when you look at the locations of those a lot of times those tend to be in kind of the outer rings of the of the very large cities so you've got those places that are probably relying fairly heavily on well feeding uncooked leftovers coming from you know, the restaurants in the larger inner cities so certainly i think that's been the primary uh, producer type that's been affected over there although there certainly have been some cases in some of the larger producers in China too, they've also been hit. But when you start to talk uh, about that, it, it appears that that tends to be more of a case or two within each of those larger, maybe more commercial type operations, rather than uh, the majority of them being more in those small and medium type producers. Yeah, that case in Beijing certainly makes you think that uh, swill feeding, garbage feeding, highly likely to be a route in which that virus is going to enter an urban area. Is that kind of the, the current thought about how it's moved into Beijing? Yeah, the, at least that's what it sounds like with many of these cases that are just outside these larger cities. They highly suspect that that's, that's the case. And then many times those producers are in the same locations as some of the larger integrated producers, so it creates a location challenge for the larger producers, just knowing that they have those type of producers that are relying on uncooked leftovers, uncooked garbage as their primary means to feed the pig is a challenge today and will continue to be fairly large and significant challenge for the Chinese swine industry moving forward in any efforts towards control or eradication of that virus. 
you bring up a great point, Chris, about the fact that it really doesn't matter how big the farm is, the current control is, is stomp out. That's the strategy, as I understand it, unless it's changed. Is even if it starts on a, a backyard farm, they're going to draw a perimeter, and if you have pigs within that perimeter, it's not a test and monitor approach. It's, uh, it's a, we, we eliminate everything. And I think that's important as U.S. producers and veterinarians think about how this situation impacts them, as we've really got a case study of what's being tried and what's working or not working. Is that still the strategy that, that you're hearing, Chris, as you go over there, that an absolute elimination of all animals within a certain geographic proximity to a case when they find it? Yeah, it gets to be a little bit fuzzy because in some of those cases, when you look at the official reports, many times those operations when you drill down on the map, are, are really close to one another. I do wonder sometimes, and they tend to all be smaller type producers, if all those cases are being officially reported. It kind of feels like through the some of the hallway talk and some of the rumors out there for people who are on the ground, you have official case, but then you can probably add another zero to the end of the official cases to get a little bit closer to those unofficial cases. So it's a little bit difficult for me to tell if that may be happening and, and maybe all they do is report the initial novel case and they're not reporting all the ones that are in the control zone. Sure. And maybe it's easy to report that an 80-pig farm has been infected and coincidentally that 80-pig farm happens to be right next to a 10,000-head sow farm might be easier to report the small farm, handle that from a messaging standpoint than to maybe talk about other cases that are, are larger, big, big system farms not very far away. That's correct. Neil, what sort of feedback are you getting? Are your sources saying similar in terms of all herds really are at risk right now? Yeah, I, I guess I'd echo what Chris said about the smaller farms seem to be more at risk. But one thing I wanted to point out is that even though there's a lot of very modern integrated swine companies in China that are using all the latest technology that we use, still 99% of the Pig farms in China produce less than 500 pigs a year, and 95% of them produce less than 50 pigs a year. So there's still a lot of small backyard-type farmers out there, so just numerically they're going to be at a higher risk to, to be infected initially, especially with the swill feeding that, that Chris mentioned. One of my friends uh, talked about sometimes when some of the smaller farms get infected, they'll try and maybe save some of the larger farms but just due to transport risk and moving pigs around, it, it's sometimes hard to try and not eliminate some of those bigger farms. And also, kind of as Chris alluded to with the hallway talk, there's some indication that there may not be enough money to pay indemnity payments for all of the farms. So from a, a local government perspective, I think it may be difficult to, to truly eliminate all of those pigs, even if that is the direction coming from the federal government. And that's that's not at all to, to criticize China. I think we would definitely struggle ourselves to try and manage an ASF outbreak. But I think logistically, it's, it sounds like it's difficult to truly eliminate some of those. And, and oftentimes, we oversimplify our industry, and we think of our industry as purely uh, modern production, 
large systems and, and very biosecure facilities. But the reality is we have a subset of our industry that is very small producers, not dissimilar to the Chinese situation, maybe not quite to that scale, but our show pig industry represents an, an absolutely enormous risk for us. Not that they would necessarily be the first ones to be infected, but controlling a disease outbreak within the show pig industry is extremely difficult, especially a disease that moves as slow and insidiously as ASF. Chris, is that something as, as you've chatted with people here in the U.S. that you think is getting attention in terms of the risk of ASF entering the show pig industry and how quickly that could be disseminated throughout that industry, especially come show season? Yeah, you know, there's always kind of the constant balance between providing opportunities for that segment of our industry and the inherent risks that the way that that industry is built and uh, particularly around the shows, not being terminal shows anymore, the movement of pigs back and forth and mixing and then bringing back home certainly creates a challenge for any diseases, let alone uh, African swine fever. But certainly, I think with the concerns about the rapid dissemination of that virus in Asia and, and the potential for risk here to the U.S., certainly those conversations have been made. Not saying that anything has changed today. The biggest piece of that will just be uh, a lot of education around the risks and things that they can do to, to mitigate that. But I would say when and if we ever are unfortunate enough to have a case here, the federal authorities I know are aware of it, certainly, and there would certainly be some changes to that structure of that industry based on confirmation of a foreign animal disease here in the U.S. Communication with some of the small producers is inherently going to be a challenge, whether you're talking about a small producer in China or a small producer here in the United States. It's much easier to get one message to one large system and impact many farms that way than it is to have to go to each individual producer with that message, whether it's one of biosecurity or the control plans or just awareness. Neil, as, as you chat with your colleagues and contacts back in China, what do you hear about communication and messaging? Is, is there anything that we can learn from how they're trying to communicate, particularly with the small producers? I think we probably need to do a better job of, of bringing in some of the non-mainstream producers, I guess. We have, there's a presenter from Canada that we listened to who talked about how the Canadian industry has basically completely eliminated swill feeding, whereas in the U.S., swill feeding still occurs in, I believe, 20 U.S. states. And we don't often think about some of those smaller producers that may be organic, niche markets, et cetera, and they may not necessarily be members of some of the industry groups that we're a part of. So I think the government needs to, to reach out to them before there's an outbreak and develop those contacts make sure that they're registered and know where they are so that when there is an outbreak, they're not working to try and figure out where all those producers are located. Yeah, I think, Neil, to add on to what you said, you make a great point. I think even that threat for us really reinforces the the need for premise identification, certainly still voluntary. I think that's something we need to continue to have discussions on, whether that should be voluntary or mandatory in order to market any type of meat, uh, to have the tr- be able to trace back and get premise identification. You know, as you outlined so well, Neil, you know, just the percentage of people who raise 50 to 100 pigs, even for them, just education on simple biosecurity, epidemiology, things of that nature is a huge deal for them 
to understand the risks of swill feeding. It's so ingrained in their culture, you know, that they're very good at utilizing what limited resources they have. So if they have even leftover table scraps, you know, none of that goes to waste. They're going to go ahead and utilize that to the livestock that they're raising. So they really have a, a large challenge from the standpoint of connecting with those people and overcoming some of those cultural nuances that luckily here we don't necessarily have ingrained into our culture. That's going to be a big hurdle for them in any sort of control and eradication effort moving forward. I think it's a huge lesson for our industry that if China is struggling to communicate with their small producers, think about that, a country with state-run media and essentially one social media app and WeChat that everybody communicates through, if, if that country has a hard time doing it, our country is going to have an extremely difficult time trying to get that message out. I think that's a huge take home for us. And, Neil, you bring up a great point. The more we can be proactive in developing those contact lists and communication streams and doing it during peacetime, quote-unquote peacetime, instead of wartime, when everybody's going to be a little nervous about sharing information, I think the more we can do it, then the better. Let's talk a little bit, guys, about um, ASF control prospects. We talked about that in the original podcast, and we were pretty pessimistic then. We're into 2019 now. Did you learn anything, Chris, that makes you think that ASF control, potentially even elimination, is possible in China? Yeah, just due to the structure of their industry and some of these cultural nuances, I think it's going to be really difficult. And now the fact that it's into wild boar as another potential reservoir to keep that virus alive, I didn't really walk away feeling hopeful in, in the truest sense. And I can certainly feel for our Chinese counterparts for some of the things that they attempt to put into place. You know, we've got new outbreaks. We stop any movement of any swine at all thinking that that is going to help control that infection. And, and the problem is because what you see pop up and definitely some differences between prices in the different provinces and the fact that, once again, we're dealing with many, many, many producers, small in size, who don't really understand the epidemiology of the disease, you create almost a black market where during the nighttime there's kind of a black market for, for the movement of pigs, and that's where, you know, we've all seen the ones where pig in a cage on the back of a motorcycle. When you're dealing with small farms and everybody's just got, you know, 20, 30 head, that sort of thing, while certainly not the intent, it becomes an indirect result of those type of bans and quarantines, and it may actually further promote the dissemination of the virus rather than attempting to stop and control with those type of orders. Neil, you mentioned the Chinese government's communication about monitoring programs that would potentially allow movement across provinces to get pigs to market and do so in a non-black market way. I mean, I, I read that as a very much an, an easing of their elimination attempts. As you talk to people over there, do you see anything um, other than that? Are the contacts you're talking to advocating for an easing of those control and elimination efforts right now, Neil, or are people over there still pushing, saying, no, we want to eliminate it, and we think that's the right thing to do? One thing I'd share, I think, that kind of echoes to what Neil's talking about will be maybe a further consolidation of their industries, maybe modeling after what happened to uh, producers in Russia, you know, if you talk to larger, more integrated producers in Russia, they would say the best thing that ever happened for them 
was getting ASF. And part of that reason is it created an environment to eliminate mall and medium producers that couldn't put the effective biosecurity measures in place to keep the virus out. So certainly in, in that country, you saw a consolidation. And I know based on some past statements that their government has made, many of that was due to closure a couple of years ago of a lot of smaller farms that were deemed to be environmental hazards that may also force consolidation of that industry into fewer, larger farms and much fewer of these small and backyard producers. As that happens, Chris, I would imagine that there's probably a a good chance short-term they'll have a supply crunch. Maybe not right now because there are a lot of market pigs still in China. They were kind of in an oversupply situation coming into 2019, much like we were. I know a lot of U.S. producers are very optimistic about the opportunity to get U.S. pork into China, and if not directly into China, indirectly to backfill where whatever country might be providing pork into China. Did you talk to folks over there at all about the potential to import meat from the United States or anywhere else as they continue to deal with this outbreak? Yeah, there was certainly some interesting talk and conversations just about pig losses in general, right? Like how big a hole is there really going to be? And it felt like in some of those early provinces, I'm not sure if this is still happening today, but I know in some of the early provinces that were affected, they put the transportation ban in, and there were a fair number of producers that just quit breeding sows, period, just figuring that if they didn't have any way to move their animals, they weren't going to invest in uh, breeding more females to create more pigs because they didn't want to have a situation where they weren't sure if they were able to move those animals uh, to market or to slaughter. So some of the animal health vendors, some of their initial projections makes me wonder if that hasn't been the case because they're talking about seeing reductions in their products move by up to 30%. So there may be something to that. I'm not sure if that's a countrywide. I'm not sure if that's still happening now. So between a combination of the mortality and and the eradication when they come in and stamp it out and producers' fears about market prices or even the ability to move the pigs, there certainly may be an opportunity to backfill that. And, and a lot of that will probably also be dictated on foreign policy and trade agreements and things such of that nature. There certainly could be an opportunity. It'll just be interesting to see how big, like you mentioned, there's still an awful lot of pigs over there, but on a per capita basis, they consume an awful lot of pork. So, you know, those sorts of rumors about there being 10 times as many unreported cases as reported cases, and if this thought process by some producers about not even breeding animals, there certainly could be a vacuum in quarter one, quarter two that might create an opportunity for U.S. or even to backfill, as you mentioned, Clayton. Neil, what, uh, what are you hearing when you talk to your contacts? Are they concerned about a pork shortage in China any time in the near future? I don't know if they really have enough information to really know for sure. I think just given the current situation, everyone's concerned that the shortage could be higher than is being reported by the government, certainly. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect storm of information in terms of Chinese pork production right now. And what I mean by that is you've got an already very sensitive situation with the trade war where I don't think the Chinese are reporting any of their duty information or import-export information. So that makes it difficult to gauge how much product is coming in from any other country whatsoever. And then you throw on top of that this ASF situation, which is also very sensitive to them and something that they just flat out want to 
make sure that the message is always positive on, as, as I'm sure most people would. It really makes it difficult to find accurate sources of information right now and try and put some sense to what seems to be an obvious opportunity for the rest of the world to sell pork to China. Guys, let's talk about some future risks here to the United States. Neil, I want to start with you. You're on farms every single day in the United States after, of course, you get quarantined from your Chinese visits. But in your, when you're on farms and you're thinking about biosecurity, what do you see as the biggest risk to ASF introduction to the farms that you work with here in the U.S.? Well, certainly there's been a lot of talk at conferences about feedstuff being a risk, certainly importing vitamins from China, et cetera. I think some of that risk may be a little bit exaggerated in our minds, just depending on where those are produced and the chance for cross-contamination. So some of those vitamins, I think, are being produced in pharmaceutical-grade facilities and may not have very much chance for contamination. But certainly other products may have carriers, et cetera, that, such as cornmeal that, that could certainly be contaminated. I know currently a lot of the ASF outbreaks have been occurring in the northeast and east of China, and that's also their largest center for corn production. And even today, there's still a culture of sometimes drying corn for some of the smaller peasant farmers out on the highway, roadside, et cetera, where there's a, a high chance of contamination. So that's certainly a risk that we continue to look at and be worried about, um, and it's very difficult to quantify. Other risk, I think, would be foodstuffs being brought into the farm. So we have uh, international workforce people buying meat products online, et cetera. I don't know if that's a huge risk, but obviously it only takes one person to, to bring in the incorrect product. And we know that ASF can survive a lot of the standard cooking procedures that we would normally use for pork products. So I think pork products being brought into the farm is also a very big risk. I think in the United States, uh, producers are very aware of the risk associated with um, feed and, and the potential to bring pathogens of all sorts into farms via feed. But particularly, the PED story has resonated very well with our producers. And I think Scott D. deserves an amazing amount of credit for the excellent work he's done, not only on the research side, but also on the communication side. We had him come to our Carthage conference last year. He did an amazing job, as he always does, of telling the, the story that is the risk of our feed ingredients. Chris, after your trip over there, do you sense that the Chinese appreciate the risk of contaminated feed ingredients as well as we do here in the United States, or are they aware of how big of a risk that is? Yeah, I think more recently after the initial shock uh, of becoming contaminated with African swine fever wears off, they certainly are looking at more of those type of things. And as you know, Neil laid out, anything that has protein or a lot of surface area probably has a larger risk. Uh, you know, I can think of things uh, such as rice hulls, things that are used as carrier agents that could be dried on the road certainly would be a, a potential risk as well. I know they banned the use of porcine plasma, but I think I also saw in a trade journal here about a week to 10 days ago where they did test some ingredients in some completed feed as well that did test positive for African swine fever. So at least uh, that was certainly an report and admission that, that, that they're starting to come to terms that feed can certainly be a potential carrier as well. From an ingredient standpoint, like you mentioned, the, the excellent work that Scott's done, at least uh, 
to help visualize what some of those potential risks may be, I think they're really just starting to come to terms and come to grips with that as being another potential vector uh, movement of this virus. So with their risks being similar to ours on the ingredient side, Chris, did you get any sense that they might take a regionalized approach to ASF control and maybe highlight some of those areas that Neil mentioned where the vitamin production uh, is occurring and take um, very aggressive steps to maintain elimination elimination efforts in those areas? Do Do you think they're thinking about segmentalizing their geographies based on, let's just call it um, centralized assets like vitamin manufacturers, et cetera, that are going to disseminate products to pork producers over long distances from there. Did that, that come up at all while you're over? It really didn't. And I think that's just because they're, they're probably working on other areas that have a higher potential for transmission, such as people movement and swell feeding and, and focusing their activities in, in those areas. I'm I'm certain, though, that they're getting pressure from foreign customers who purchase their ingredients from those mills in those areas, asking questions now about biosecurity, manufacturing processes, trying to identify any potential risky ingredient providers. So while not directly, I think indirectly through, I'm sure, just some pressure from some of their Uh, export partners, they're starting to take a look at that. I'm not sure, though, from an internal standpoint that that they're come to the point yet where they're really focusing on that as a control measure, just because, frankly, they probably have larger fish to fry in the transmission arena. Yeah, makes sense. Neil, one of the things that I think you explained very well is the the Chinese concept of face and how sometimes that results in maybe some spin on information and maybe sometimes not even being forthcoming with information that's got uh, a negative connotation to it. Do you think that we're going to have continued challenges when it comes to getting information on the true risks to U.S. producers out of China um, because of that concept of face and because of the need to try and always put a positive spin on everything? Yeah, to be frank, I, I think you summed it up pretty well, but just given the way that the government's structured and the concept of faith and saving faith, et cetera, in Chinese culture, which has served their culture well for 5,000 years, I don't, I don't see them changing drastically on that anytime soon. Yeah, and it will probably mean that for those of us who have the opportunity to travel there, having good, solid relationships with people who are on the front lines is probably going to be one of our best conduits. And us being able to share information on podcasts like these are going to be a a good way to get that information disseminated, at least to give us an idea of what's going on. And then we just have to compare that to what's being officially reported. Chris, if ASF does show up here in the U.S., there's been talk about a shutdown and a stop movement. Can we learn anything from the Chinese handling of these situations right now? They're trying to do something similar. Obviously, producers are nervous about that. Are are there lessons learned that we can harvest from their efforts over there, or is that just going to be as painful as we all anticipate it'll be? Yeah, I would anticipate it's going to be painful. We're going to have some distinct advantages over what they will. You know, we don't really have much of a black market or movement of animals that occur that that wouldn't be have a methodology for being able to track them. Uh, so I think that will be in our favor, certainly from that standpoint. That's one thing we don't have to deal with. Um, you know, also, I think, frankly, for the most part, although we probably identified some potential to continue to educate 
maybe some smaller or niche producers. But we've done a good job where we're able to get to most of the people with educational material about uh, what this is, what it looks like, when to know uh, to contact somebody and, and alert somebody that there, something different may be going on. I think all that will be really important in that situation. Uh, I think the government officials realize that stop movement will be for a short term, you know, so some of the things you ought to think about is, you know, make sure you're <laughs> keeping your bins as full of feed as you can so that you can withstand a short term stop movement of, of pigs or feed or anything like that just to be prepared. So I think we'd have some distinct advantages over what, what they're having to deal with there uh, that would probably serve us well when and if this would ever happen to us. Well, Chris, I can promise you that when and if it ever happens, I will stay tuned to your Twitter feed nonstop to get the updates on what's going on because you've done a great job of keeping people up to speed with what's going on in China. Well, I sure appreciate that. It's just another medium and then certainly a way to reach the younger people. They they do a good job of, of tagging along with that, so it's been kind of fun to be able to disseminate that information like that. All right, guys. I think that gets us through a lot of the meat and potato questions I had. I want to I want to give each of you guys an opportunity to just maybe mention some things that you had uh, some notes on. The one thing I didn't mention was there was a professor, a DVM PhD from Kansas State, Jurgen Richter, who presented on the possibility of developing an ASF vaccine and the difficulties associated with that. And one of the things I learned is just how complicated of a virus it is. So it has between 15 to 18,000 base pairs and 150 to 180 open reading frames. And just to compare that to a mycoplasma, which is one of the smallest genus of bacteria, they have 650,000 base pairs and 650 open reading frames. So, you know, it's about one-fiftieth the size of the of a mycoplasma genome, so a huge virus genome. That makes it very difficult to develop a vaccine for it. And additionally, similar to HIV and a few other viruses, uh, it infects macrophages. And so antibodies against ASF are theorized to actually potentiate infection because it could speed up entry into the macrophage. So developing a vaccine will probably not be very quick or easy. It won't be quick and it won't be easy. Europe's been working on it um, really nonstop for, for the entire time they've been battling this virus uh, and still a long ways away. But I would tell you guys that I see vaccine as our only solution. We absolutely should be focused on prevention. We absolutely should be putting resources towards control planning. But the only solution for China is going to be a vaccine. It's endemic in the country as we speak. And very soon, we're going to have the same conversation about the rest of Southeast Asia. The horse is out of the barn. It's within spitting distance of Hong Kong and, and all the rest of Southeast Asia. And as long as it's a risk over there, and as long as it's a risk in Europe, it's going to be a risk to the United States. And until we have a vaccine, we won't be able to get it under control anywhere. And we certainly won't be able to respond to it like we would like to in the United States. Couldn't uh, agree with you more on that, Clayton. That will certainly be the answer uh, long term. Uh, the unfortunate part about it is it's a little bit like PERS, right? We've been working on that for 30 years, and we still don't know exactly where the protective epitope on, on that virus is. Now imagine a virus that's much larger even than PERS. So 
we you know we have we have a lot of good technology that we didn't have 10 20 years ago so hopefully that will expedite our ability to get a vaccine built but boy there certainly doesn't look like there's anything on the horizon but for this virus I'm with you I don't see any other way long term for for especially for countries who have the virus of of getting it under control without vaccine one thing Clayton that I would mention I think that it, that is important maybe not necessarily pertaining to China but maybe more just understanding more about the virus we're we're very fortunate here to have the ability to do some research and and the team at Kansas State, uh, Megan Niederwander, uh, Cassie Jones, you know, they've been doing some stuff uh, looking at, you know, the oral infectious dose in both feed matrices and even in water. And, and some recent information on that, I know, as they're getting ready to publish that articles, it looks like the uh, infectious dose in water is very, very small. And if you think about how many times a day that pigs drink, you know, just going to increase the probability of even a, a low dose of that virus. And that virus, as we, we've learned, is very, very hardy. It's very resilient in the environment, can, can create issues of infecting pigs in a naive population. So that, that, as that information becomes published and becomes more public, it's probably really going to make us review some of our cleanup plans and mass euthanasia. And I know many places would consider burial as an option for that, but certainly with that knowledge, that could potentially be a risk for contaminating groundwater. So there'll be a lot of, of work that, that we'll continue to do here, hopefully keeping the virus out while we can, but learning about uh, potential things that we'd have to do when and if the virus ever would uh, reach in North America here. That's excellent, Chris. Thank you for that. All right, guys, let's uh, wrap this up with some closing thoughts here. Neil, I'm going to turn it over to you first. Why don't you give us your take-home message for the U.S. pork industry regarding the global ASF status and and your long-term projections for what this means to all of us? Well, I think, as you mentioned, we need to to realize that it's here to stay, or it's in the world to stay, I should say. So, as, as we think about developing biosecurity strategies to try and keep it out of the U.S. and out of our farms, we need to think about long-term strategies that we can continue to implement two, five, ten years down the road, most likely. Um, so I think we really need to look at everything. And as we mentioned before, Scott D's done some really good work with looking at feedstuffs, but I think we really need to look at our overall approach, including swill feeding practices in the United States and and other ways that we can try and keep it out of the U.S. Because I think if I have one takeaway, it would be that we definitely don't want it to to wash up on on our shores. Very good. Thank you, Neil. Chris, your closing thoughts for the audience? Yeah, I I think uh, fortunately or unfortunately, as Neil mentioned, the viruses in China will probably continue to be there. And and that, and certainly in Europe as well, is going to create continual uh, issues for us because we do wind up importing feed ingredients from both of those continents. So continuing to to fund work that's done by uh, Scott D. and by the group at K-State and here at Iowa State and any of the land-grant institutions that are able to work on um, what we can do to, to try to mitigate those risks is going to be really important here in the future because all uh, like we say it only takes one time you know PED was in uh, China for a long time before it uh, unfortunately hitched a ride most likely on a feed ingredient and got into the US so 
that will be a, a clear and, and present and continual threat for the U.S. wine industry that we need to continue to make sure we're getting good research done, looking at ways we can mitigate it, along with just doing a great job of education, continuing to work with APHIS and, and where we can support teaching people about the dangers of moving the moving that virus around. We had a speaker at the Swine Disease Conference here at Iowa State in November, Dr. Klaus Deppner, who's an epidemiologist from Germany. And, you know, his thing that really struck home with me is he says ASF is not a pig disease, it's a people disease, because that's primarily how that virus gets disseminated. So uh, we have to take, you know, the learnings as we get from those countries that are uh, dealing with it and, and figure out how we can apply uh, countermeasures and interventions and mitigation strategies as quickly as we can learn them to try to keep that virus out. And if we're able to, certainly will provide us with an opportunity to uh, export excess pork that we produce to those countries. Thanks, Chris. For my closing thoughts, I think we've learned, continued to learn, that ASF is absolutely a disease that we can't handle right now. Vaccine is, is our long-term solution. We don't have it right now, though, and the risk is going to be very high until we do have a, an effective vaccine. China and the EU are going to continue to experience outbreaks. They're going to continue in Asia and in the EU, as we've seen, to have large geographic jumps of the virus that are unexpected, sudden, and, and continue to pose risk to us. We have to prevent the infection until we get a vaccine. We have a wonderful opportunity right now to feed the world, a uh, world, most of the world that is dealing with the worst pig disease that we have. We are very unique in the Americas that we've been blessed to not have this disease. It creates a tremendous market opportunity for us, one that we absolutely needed in 2018 and 2019 as we were coming into a period of oversupply. So let's take advantage of it and not ruin it by bringing this disease into the country. We need to continue to know where our risks are. If you're listening to this and you're a producer or a veterinarian in the United States, know where your risks are and continue to push to fund research and education for those risks. Neil brought up a great point that I can't reinforce enough. We've got to work to develop communication pathways and processes now. If we don't have those things in place, we don't have any hope of a successful stomp out uh, during an ASF outbreak. For Chris Rodemaker and Neil Benjamin, I'm Clayton Johnson. Thanks for joining us, and please help us share this important information with your colleagues and peers. I'd also like to thank Mr. Joe Feeks and his team at Pig Health today for really helping coordinate this effort, and I absolutely have to thank Zoetis for their sponsorship. We appreciate you being with us, and hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Pig Health Today. This program was made possible by Zoetis. Visit pighealthtoday.com for the latest news and information on pig health and welfare. You can also sign up for updates at pighealthtoday.com backslash subscribe.